Make your way in, make your way to your seats. Welcome. Good morning. And as you are grabbing your seats, would you join me in prayer, asking the Lord's blessing on our time together, the proclamation, the hearing, and how we respond to his word. Let's pray, please. Father, thank you that you are far above us, and yet by your spirit, because of your gracious goodness, you are here with us. Would you bless us now, help us to hear from you. We ask that you would, or that we would leave because you have changed us today. We would leave different, trusting you more, loving you more, praising you more. We ask this in the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, and for your glory. Amen. Well, I get the privilege today of preaching to you from this book, the Bible. Whenever someone asks me what I'm preaching on, hey, what are you preaching on this week? I always tell them the text that I'm preaching on. And then if they want further, I'll tell them what the text is about. But I want to make it clear that I'm preaching this book. I love this book. It is the Word of God. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Holy Spirit uses it both as a sword and a scalpel to destroy strongholds and to heal wounds. God uses this book, the Bible, to change destinies, to transform lives, to save sinners. It is through this book that God reveals himself. That's the function and the focus of this book, and I love it. But I also love the Bible because of its form. I love how the Bible is put together. I love how it connects. There is something about Psalm 33 that has a, a mathematical and artistic symmetry to it. It's well-constructed and well-connected, and it's, it's beautiful. I wish I had the time and the ability to tell you all about it, but I don't. But I will, I will share with you this. The Psalm 33 is Hebrew poetry, and so it, is, it is, has this form that's on purpose. And there's these six stanzas with these 22 lines. We have 22 verses in English. There are 22 lines in Hebrew, and there are six stanzas. You might think of a, a song that has these verses. There are these stanzas. And the first stanza and the last stanza of Psalm 33 are kind of like bookends that frame it together and hold it together. And they each have three or six lines in Hebrew, depending on how you count them. And in the middle, uh, verses 4 through 19, there are these four stanzas of four or eight lines each. And there's a verbal connection cue connecting one stanza to the next to the next, so it's all fit together so nicely. And when I look at the, the form of this psalm, it, it helps us to see the focus. And that is um, really what the, the psalm is all about. We see it from the bookends. It, it, the, the, two last, the first and last stanza tell us what the psalm is about. And the first stanza, the first bookend, is verses 1 through 3. We read, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This psalm that tells us from this first bookend is about praise, joyful 
praise. And there is no other kind of praise because joy, uh, praise is simply joy being expressed. That's what praise is. When you enjoy something and then you talk about it, you're praising. Whatever it is that you are enjoying, when you communicate that joy, you are praising. And I love this phrase. It says, praise befits the upright. It just simply means that it's fitting. It's appropriate. It's proper. It is right and good and beautiful to praise the Lord. Psalm 147 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. There is no better way to use your time than to praise God. But you say, is that just kind of a, uh, like a Hallmark card? It's just random and arbitrary? Like here's just a, a, a random truth? Well, we know that's not true. We read the Psalms and they all are fit in some setting. There's some occasion to them. If you look at, the, at Psalm 34, you might see a superscript above it where it says, before verse 1, it says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's telling you the circumstance or the situation of the psalm. So there's a reason why he wrote that psalm. Well, we in verse, on Psalm 33, we don't see a superscript. There's nothing telling us what the psalm is about until we look at the psalm itself. And there's nothing super specific. It really is the setting of this psalm is life. It's life in this created and fallen world, both as he's living in his life, but also as he's facing the future. And that gives rise to this psalm. But that actually, if you think about it, is kind of odd. Because life is challenging. And I don't mean just the hard parts of life where we are struggling with something big. I mean just even the ordinary parts of life, of paying bills and doing your chores, of getting everything done and, and, and dealing with relationships. It's challenging. And then here the psalmist speaks of creation. And creation can be overwhelming because it's vast. It's too big. It's too much. It's too much for us to, to, to search out and understand, let alone, let, uh, let alone control. It's not just a created world, though. It's a fallen world. A fallen world is full of sin, including our own sin. It's a fallen world, in, including sin and suffering, and pain, and darkness, and death, and evil, and opposition that we cannot control. That's just in the present. But then you look to the future, and that seems even scarier at times because it's unknown to us. And it's uncontrollable by us. And therefore, it can seem scary, make us feel unsettled, unstable. And because of all of this, we might conclude or at least feel this is question looming in the back of our minds. Does it even make sense to shout for joy and sing praise? Does it make sense that it's fitting? Is it really appropriate? Is it logical? Is it even possible to praise God? When your job is in jeopardy or your family member is sick, when you're dealing with loss or loneliness or chronic pain and disability or a myriad of other things, is it really appropriate? Is it really fitting? Does it make sense and is it possible to sing praise to God, to be joyful? Right now, and last I checked earlier this morning, 
we're on day 23 of 17 missionaries being held hostage in Haiti. 16 of them American, one Canadian. There are five children among them. Being held ransom by some infamous gang. And we think they're scared. They're suffering. Is it appropriate that we would sing for joy today? Or think that there are literally billions of people right now who are rebelling against God, not trusting in the Lord Jesus, and will face judgment. Add to that the fact that by the time it takes me to preach this sermon, roughly around 5,000 people will die, and they will face the judge. And just statistically speaking, many of them will be condemned. Is it appropriate for us to sing for joy today? I, want, I looked at a post somebody had, um, an Olympian actually made over the summer. It was a picture of um, kind of this weird angle of this restaurant, and there's the, this outdoor kind of cafe patio. There were people there sitting, eating brunch, but that really wasn't the focus. The focus was right outside of that. There's a street, and you could see people protesting. They're holding up signs. They're marching. And the caption of the post read, there are two types of people in this world. Those who protest in fight for justice and those who eat brunch. Now the message surely was we need to care about what's right and wrong. We need to fight against injustice. And as the message goes, that's true and right. But I think she went too far. Saying too much. Is it true that if someone anywhere, at any place, at any time, is crying that we can't smile? If someone is hurting, can we not laugh? If someone is suffering, can we not shout for joy? Even if that someone is us. It is true we are to weep with those who weep, right? Reminded a friend of that this week that it is, it is okay to cry when things are sad. It's okay to be upset and bothered by things that really should bother us, right? That's not only okay, it's right. You should not feel guilty about lamenting and mourning the bad, evil things in this world. That is right. You're not less spiritual. You don't, you're not lacking in faith because you're bothered by that darkness all around you and within. We are to weep with those who weep, but we're also to rejoice with those who rejoice. And it is equally true that you, sh you need not feel guilty when you shout for joy and sing praise to God. In fact, I would say that <clears throat> even though this world is full of so much darkness and chaos and sin and pain and death and evil, we should not feel guilty when we shout for joy and sing praise to God. It is always fitting, you see. It is always good. It is always right. It is always beautiful even in times of our own personal suffering, to also not only be sorrowful, but also full of joy. They're both right. Now, I'm saying that because it's true. But why? Why is that true? Why is it appropriate when others are sorrowful, and even when we are sorrowful, that it is also good and appropriate and fitting to sing praise of joy to God? Why is that appropriate, and how is it even possible? Well, Psalm 33, if you'll remember, has two bookends, not just verses 1 through 3, the first stanza, but also the second bookend, the last stanza, verses 20 through 22. 
And if the first stanza is about praise, the last stanza is about hope. Our soul, verse 20, waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Even as we hope in you. So now the question remains, well, is Psalm 33, if it's really, um, we, we, through this form of these first and last stanzas, these bookends, if that tells us the focus of the psalm, is it about praise or is it about hope? And of course the answer is yes, it's both. What I want to do is help you to see the relationship between praise and hope so that you can see that the, the, the reason why hope makes praise both possible and appropriate. Possible and fitting and right and good and beautiful. The simplest way I can show you the relationship between praise and hope is by saying that hope leads to praise. Hope produces praise. Hope is that necessary basis upon which and out of which praise springs. Well, let me dig a little bit deeper here and say this, that as I said before, that praise is just the expression of joy, right? Whenever you're enjoying something, if you want to talk about it, that actually is the, the completion of your joy when you, when you talk about it. So praise is still this joy peace. It's like a little child who says, ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. I got it inside. It's got to come out. That's what praise is. It's joy being finally expressed and fulfilled. And so most, most narrowly, we might say that Praise comes from joy, but joy comes from hope. Now, it's, it's hard for me to even explain how tight and how necessary the relationship between these three are. The, the, the link is so tight that there is a distinction between the three, and yet there is no disconnection. That hope leads to joy, and joy leads to praise, because that's what the praise is, the expression of joy. Without hope, you cannot enjoy anything. It's not possible. You, you, without hope, you would, not, you would be so afraid that you would lose the good thing you have, you wouldn't actually be able to enjoy it. It would be so insecure, so unstable, without hope, you could not enjoy it. You'd be afraid you'd lose it, or that it would break, or that someone would take it, or that you would destroy it, or that it would destroy you, or that it would diminish and fade, or whatever it would be. You cannot have joy without hope. The hopeless person is the joyless person. The Apostle Paul in Romans says it this way, we rejoice in hope. He says it in Romans 5.2 and in Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope. That is our joy is because of hope. Or as the psalmist says here in Psalm 33 verse 21, for our heart is glad in him, we have joy, because we trust in his holy name. That's hope. Notice the word because there. Our heart is glad in Him because we hope in Him. That's the cause. The cause of our joy, which is expressed in praise, is our trust in Him. It's our hope in Him. And so if joy comes from hope and praise comes from joy, clearly we have to understand logically so that praise is dependent upon hope. If we have this solid foundation of hope, of real hope, then joy springs from it and it's completed in praise. But this is somewhat of the easy part of seeing the connection of logically how it flows from hope to joy to praise. The harder part is actually putting our hope where it belongs and keeping it there. 
Because this world, as I said, where is, is just not easy. It's dark. It's a world where sin and suffering are as common as the air we breathe. And we can often feel desperate for security and peace and joy. And in this dark world, with its struggles for today and its uncertain future of tomorrow, because we are sinners, we can easily end up putting our hopes in whatever promises us at the moment, whatever promises us relief, whatever promises us stability or happiness, whether that be politics or material or financial security or possessions or personal health or success or adventure or powerful leaders or charismatic people or popularity for yourself or a billion other things. That say, trust me, put your hope in me, and you will be secure. You will have hope. You will have joy. But putting your hope in any of these things is dreadfully foolish. Because these things have no more control over the world's ills and evils any more than a feather in a storm has control over where it lands. Listen to what he says in verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. And I love that verse 17 where it says, the war horse is a false hope. The Hebrew word is deceit. It's a lie. It looks so promising. I can, I can trust it. That will give me hope. That will bring me victory and security and happiness in life. It's a lie. It cannot. It does not have the power to because it does not have the control over all things. So it is dreadfully foolish to put your hope in any of these things or any of things like them. But it's worse than foolish. It's wicked because it's a front. It's an offense. It's a dishonoring sin, an act of rebellion against God. So hoping in things like these only invites the unbearable and unstoppable wrath of the sovereignly good. God. And that's it. By the way, that's it. God's sovereign goodness. It's His sovereign goodness is where we are, to meant, we are meant to put our hope. That's where it must be if we are to find joy that results in praise. Joyful praise of God comes from sure hope in God. That's where it comes from. Notice, I didn't say joyful praise of God comes from easy circumstances or when things go as you want them to. Joyful praise of God comes from sure hope in God. And that sure hope in God in particular is found in His sovereign goodness over all things and in every circumstance. Yes, even the hard ones, the dark ones, the painful ones. God is sovereignly good in all of that. That's what Psalm 33 is about. Verses 1 through 3 tell us it's the command to praise the Lord. It's fitting. You must. This is what you ought to do. And in 20 through 22, it's the commitment to hope in the Lord because that's the basis of our joy and our praise, joy being expressed. But verses 4 through 19, that's the, 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 the body of this psalm. These four middle stanzas give us the case for hoping in God and therefore praising Him. It's the reason why we are to hope in Him and therefore praise Him. And the focus of verses 4 through 19 is the sovereign goodness of God. So what I want to do is I want to um, help you to see this, this very simple progression. It's the sovereign goodness of God that leads to the sure hope in God that gives us pure joy in God and therefore genuine praise of God. 
That's how it works. There's reason to have a sure and solid hope because God is sovereignly good. When we have that hope, it produces joy and it ends in praise. And so what is the sovereign goodness of God? And, and, and why, why can we, and indeed why should we hope in God because He's sovereignly good? Let's break it down into two parts. First, the goodness of God, because that's what we find first in the text, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 33, verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright. The, the word here does not refer to mainly the Bible as much as refers to the, the decrees of God, what He has commanded to be. It's what He has ordained. It's His plans. And it's saying whatever God ordains is right. Whatever He has decreed, seen from the right perspective, is always good. It always results in a, a beautiful mosaic in which we should rejoice and praise Him for. The word of the Lord is upright. Whatever God ordains is right. And then it says, on all His work is done in faithfulness. That, that is what He actually does. Corresponds to His plans that are always right. They correspond to His promises to do what is right. And they correspond to His person. His own heart. Verse 5. What is His person? What is His character? He loves righteousness and justice. That's who He is. That's what He loves. So His Word and His work are, are, are full of righteousness and justice. But even more than that, that's, this is God being good. Okay, God is good. He's not bad. He doesn't, he doesn't love evil and injustice. He loves righteousness and justice. But more than God's goodness being about righteousness... It also adds and says, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This was actually, I stumbled over this a bit. <laughs> because it doesn't just say God is good to the world. It says the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is His covenant kindness. This is His merciful, gracious goodness. And He gives foretaste of it all the time, all over the world. I uh, was reading one commentator, and he said, I'm paraphrasing here, that God, if he was pleased to do so, he could have very easily, and justly so, made every sight ugly. He could have made every smell a stench, every sound a cacophony, every taste gross, grotesque, and every touch torturous. He could have. But because he is good, he didn't. He is good in the fact that his steadfast love is seen and felt everywhere. So we see beauty. We, we, we smell sweet flowers. And soon, Thanksgiving turkey. We hear sound of beautiful noise and music. We, we get to taste delicious food and have gentle and healing touches. God does this and like a million other things for us every day. His mercies are new. Because He's good. He is good. And so for these things alone, because He is this kind of good God, we ought to praise Him. Our joy should overflow and expand and express in praise. But He's more than just good. He's also sovereignly good. God's sovereign goodness. That He is sovereign means that He is an absolute, authoritative, enduring, and powerful control. Over all things and in every circumstance, in life, 
in this challenging life, in this created and fallen world, both now and in the future forevermore, God is sovereignly good in and over it all. And in this psalm we find there are four kind of highlights of this. First, we see that God is sovereignly good in and over all of creation, showing His control. Look at verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the same word, that decree, that ordain is right, whatever is ordained is right, this, this same word, the same decree, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. By the breath of His mouth, all their host, that is the stars in the sky. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and He puts the deeps in storehouses. And so let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? Because He spoke and it came to be. He didn't have to gather materials and go get permits and get some help and figure out how to get it all done and work hard and then rest and work hard again and not figure out how to get it all done and run into problems. He simply spoke and it was. He commanded it. He decreed it. And it not only stood, it stood firm, unalterable. The laws of nature, this creation is as it is because it's upheld by the word of His power. He is sovereign. And he controls it all. And you notice what it speaks of. Just the earth in general. But two things he points out in verses 6 and 7. The waters of the sea and the stars in space. That's the two things he mentions. I think because they're kind of complete opposites. There's the depths of the sea and there's the heights of the heavens. And both are unfathomable. We cannot reach either of them. In ancient Middle East, this, the sea was often saw, uh, seen as evil and chaotic because it got so dark you couldn't see, and it was uncontrollable. It still is. We can't fathom all of it. We can't control any of it, really. And the stars in the heavens, there are some that we can't even see. We haven't even seen yet. Even if we can see them, we cannot control them. They're so vast and so much bigger than us. They're overwhelming, and God says, not for me. I love verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. The idea is it's like he puts them in a bottle of his own and says, I can contain them and hold them at will. They are where they are. They do what they do because I am sovereignly good over them. What overwhelms us, what we cannot control, God says, it's in my hand creation. This created world, but it's not just a created world, it's also a a fallen world. And God is sovereignly good in and over all of this fallen world. He's sovereignly good in and over all sin and all injustice. To bring not only control, but judgment. Again, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. He doesn't just say, let Israel fear the Lord. Let the people of God fear the Lord. He says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Verse 10, because the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Every time this is used in the Old Testament, this language is of judgment. God sees the evil plans of the people. And He brings them to nothing. Verse 13 The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions their heart, the hearts of all of them, and observes all their deeds, he knows what every person has done, said, thought, felt, valued, hated, feared, all of it. 
And he says, I will bring judgment. He's the all-seeing, the all-powerful God. And remember, his goodness means, first, his righteousness. And justice, that's what he loves. And so he hates the evil plans of the peoples, and he brings their counsel to nothing. That's what it will be at the end of the day. When judgment comes, he will bring it to nothing. They think they succeed, and they're getting away with murder. He says, not so fast. He will bring judgment. He will make, bring vindication for all injustice. He sees it, and he cares about it. God is sovereignly good in and over it all. Thirdly, he is sovereignly good in and over all of the present and even future circumstances. To bring control and judgment, but also security. Look at verse 11. In contrast to the, the plans of the people and the counsel of the peoples, the nations around them, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Now, if you are one of those who reject God and rebel against him, this should be terrifying to you. Because his plans to bring judgment cannot be stopped. But if you were one of his people, you should shout for joy and sing praise. Because verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Because his counsel and his plans are for our good. But I love this phrase, it stands forever and it stands to all generations. I needed that this week. Lately, um, God has been convicting me that I've been anxious over the fragility of life. The things seem to... They, they, everything good seems so precarious. Like it's just right on the edge and can fall at any moment. Everything can change in an instant. It can all be taken away. Just feeling the weight of that this week has made me anxious. And God rebuked me and comforted me with His verse. My plans. My plans for my family. I have great plans for my kids, but what will become of them in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? I have good plans, but I cannot, I cannot make them come about. I'm not sovereign. And that's scary to me. My plans for my church. Oh, that Piney Ridge would be faithful, a gospel-proclaiming, God-glorifying church hundreds of years after I'm dead and gone. May it be but I can't make it be. I can't make us last till next week. My plans for my denomination or my nation, it seems so fragile, so precarious, but I cannot keep it secure. And maybe worst of all, my own heart. I've been a Christian for over 30 years and my my commitment, my plans are that I would, to that my dying breath be praising the Lord, faithful to the end. But I know, as Steve said earlier, I don't have the power to do that. I've lasted 30 years, but what about another 30 or 40 or 50 years? Will I remain faithful? I wish I had the power, the sovereignty to make it all so. But God says, the counsel and the plans of my heart will stand firm to all generations, forever and ever. we got to trust in God being sovereignly good because we're not. 
Even what we think is good, he says, my plans are better. And by the way, I can bring them about, and I will. His counsel stands. There is a security, trusting in God, because all that he ordains is right. The word of the Lord is upright. His plans are good, and they are secure. So we can hope in him. And that hope will lead to joy. That joy will lead to praise in any and every circumstance. Both for now and in the future. And fourthly, the sovereign goodness of God means that He is sovereignly good in and over all of the fallenness of this world. There is opposition that just humanity faces in general. There is opposition that we as Christians face. And there is opposition that we face personally. God says, I am sovereignly good in and over that. He is sovereignly good in and over all sin. Both sin against us, but also our own sinfulness. And it struggles and suffering, even death and judgment. So that he brings control to this chaotic world. He brings judgment to that which is evil. He brings security to that which seems so fragile. And he brings salvation. He brings salvation to sinners. Verses 18 through 22. It's, it picks up right up after 16 and 17. It says, don't hope in your army or your strength, your resources or the war horse, none of the things that you think that you normally can hope in, your abilities, your skills, your strength, your, your family, your nation, your church, whatever, don't do that. But instead, hope in the Lord. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. No one and nothing else, but He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. These verses, 18 through 22, give us a call to hope in the Lord. Hope in Him. Nothing else but hope in the Lord. They give us a prayer to pray to God. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as, that's a causal phrase here, because we are hoping in you. And it gives us word of commitment to God. God, we will hope in you no matter what. But it also gives us a word of praise. God, you are worthy to be hoped in. We'll praise your name with great joy. We hope in you. We don't have to be like the world who hopes in other things and constantly finds something new and this is fascinating or this seems to be hope-worthy or I can trust in this and it's just going about ping-ponging with every wind and wave of doctrine. But we can be firm. We can hope in the Lord unwaveringly so because His love is steadfast and He is sovereignly good. Jesus is both strong and kind. We can hope in Him. But how do we do that? How do we hope in the Lord? Verse 18 tells us that a, a parallel idea of hoping in the Lord is fearing Him. But what do we mean by fearing Him? Verse 8 tells us to stand in awe of Him. To be afraid of hoping in anything else because there is no joy there. There is no life there. There is no real foundation there. There's no control or security or justice. There is no salvation outside of God. So fearing him says, he is unique. He alone is worthy to be trusted in, to be hoped in. There is none like him. 
So I stand in awe of him. We hope in him by fearing him, but also by praying to him. Again, verse 22, God, let your steadfast love be upon us. We hope in you. God, we're throwing ourselves on you, putting all of our eggs in the basket that is the Lord. All of our weight is resting on you. You have to come through for us. But do you see what he says? God, come through for us. Be sovereignly good for us. But he uses the phrase, your steadfast love. You're unstoppable, unshakable, unbreakable, promised and secure, faithful love. He's asking God to be the very thing that he is. To do the very thing that he's promised to do. God, be sovereignly good for us. Faithfully enduring to the end. Hoping in God means fearing Him, means praying to Him, and it also means waiting for Him. The Hebrew word for wait and hope have a very similar uh, consonants and sound even. And that's this Hebrew poetry where he's connecting these, these words together. It, to hope in Him means to wait for Him. But, we, but by waiting, we don't always mean doing nothing though, do we? It means doing the right thing while we wait. It means doing what we ought to do while we wait for God to bring about the results. Waiting for Him means trusting Him and so refusing to hope in anything else. Refusing to hope in our own resources or the promises of others. It's refusing to hope in the ways that are contrary to God. If you are a parent, <clears throat> perhaps you've said this. Perhaps if you have parents, you've heard this. I have to yell at them, otherwise they won't listen. That's a lie. It's a lie. That's a false hope is what that is. That's trusting in the war horse. I, I, I can give them by, my, my uh, just power of my voice and my intimidation and causing them fear. They will obey, perhaps outwardly, but you will not win their heart. And it's opposite of hoping in him. God says, do not exasperate them. Lead them in the instruction and, and the discipline of the Lord. Love them. Give them gospel grace. Remind them again and again and again and again. And say, yeah, but that's so hard because I don't see fruit right away. And that's where he says, wait for the Lord. Hoping in God means you're waiting for him to bring about the, the, the response, the outcome, as you do his things his way. You submit to his way. This is true in all satisfaction, in all change that we desire. In every relationship, in every sphere of life, we want, we want satisfaction of comfort or security or pleasure. We want things to change with us or with other people or our circumstances. He says, hoping in me means doing what I've called you to do and then waiting for me to make it right. That's how you hope in the Lord. In every aspect every circumstance, every situation, because he is sovereignly good over and in it all. And so we hope in him. And when we hope in him, it leads to joy, which leads to the expression of that joy, which is praise. No other hope can do this. Not really. It won't last. But all hope, all sure hope of joy rests in the sovereign goodness of God. And the sovereign goodness of God is the only basis that we need 
for joy. It's the only basis we need for praising God, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult this world gets. So let's fear Him. Let's pray to Him. Let's wait for Him. Let's hope in Him and so be led to shout for joy and sing praise to God because He is sovereignly good. And yet, as I said earlier, the sovereign goodness of God first means that He has this supreme and awesome power, control, absolute authority over all things, and He is righteous. So what hope do sinners like us have that God would be sovereignly good to us in love? If He's sovereignly good in righteousness, wouldn't He bring justice to bear? Wouldn't He bring judgment on us? Indeed. And so He sent Jesus. You see, it is the cross of Jesus Christ where we find the sovereign goodness of God's righteousness and the sovereign goodness of God's grace most perfectly displayed. Because, you see, He poured out His justice, His judgment, His wrath on Jesus so that in sovereign goodness of grace, He could pour it out on us. This is the good news. That Jesus lived, He died, He rose from the dead to purchase the sovereign goodness of God to always and only be for us who trusted Him and never against us. So that's why this morning, if you are here and you're not yet hoping in God's sovereign goodness through Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension and promised return of Jesus, if you're not even sure what all that means, not yet, then this communion meal that we're about to partake of is not yet for you. Instead of coming up when others do, stay where you're at and pray. Ask God simply and earnestly to help you to understand, to see the truth, the beauty. Help him to, ask Him to help you to see the sovereign goodness of God is for you only in Jesus Christ. Who He is and what He has done. And this morning, if you are hoping in Jesus. And you've had that faith in Jesus affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church. And in just a moment, you can come up, exit to the left and come up to one of these tables. Grab your communion elements, this bread and this juice that represents the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that was given for sinners like us on the cross to secure the sovereign goodness of God for us. And take it with joy. Take it with joy, because blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. And if this is you, beloved, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, then you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're part of the people of God made for His own possession, that He might call you out, right, to proclaim His excellency, because He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is reason, the basis, the case, the ground for us hoping in Him and therefore rejoicing in Him and praising Him. If you want to be prayed with about anything, whether you're partaking of communion or not, I'm going to be here standing in front of the stage. I would love to pray with you. 
And if you should stay where you are, stay and pray. And if you should come when you are ready, you may come, partake of communion with joy.